I want to share those answers with everybody. Connecting with the community live. So thank you for three years of listening. Season four of The Little Life. Welcome to Live With Us. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Little Ones podcast. Season four, Live With Lex. Um, happy Sunday night, first of all. I love that we do this on Sunday night. It's like cozy. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's awesome. But... It's such an honor to introduce you tonight. Um, You're such an incredible guest to have for the second time, really. (laughs) And and what a wealth of information you were the first time around. This is on a different topic. And you have so much information to share. Plus, you're a trusted resource for me. Um, You're an owner an operator of the Recovery Mobile Clinic. You're an absolute soldier in the fight against addiction. And also, I feel like when you're serving in the healthcare industry, when so many feel underserved or that healthcare is inaccessible, truly um, such an angel, you have a master's that you never talk about in acute care as a nurse practitioner. And ladies and gentlemen, there are many other things that this woman is beyond all of those. She's also a dear friend of mine. Welcome to the show again, Jordana Lakotas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back on. Oh, <laughs> we're excited to have you, but I, I truly mean it when I say, when I go back through your bio and I'm looking at all the things you've done since, when did we meet, like three years ago? Yeah, yep, uh, at the Healthcare Conference 2.0, so that was 21, 20, yeah, 21. Something like that. Yeah. In the gray period. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, 21, but in Vegas. And instantly, I was like, you, you just really are really something. And and then when we did our last podcast interview and you're in the back of your mobile healthcare van helping people in real time talking about hospice care, I was like, this was like, <laughs> like, what did you guys do today? Yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense, but it's fantastic to watch. So um, I'm, I'm super duper grateful that you're here especially when we have had many questions on the topic that you, the topics that you brought up um, in our previous, like our first discussion for this one, um, when it comes to addiction and, and disabilities with addiction and, and things like that, um, there's just not a lot of people talking about these things. And, I'm always the one, like even when my kids are like, I'm certain there's a monster in the closet. Well, let's open the closet. <laughs> right. I'd like to very, I'd very much like to see the monster in your closet because <laughs> I'm not scared of monsters. But um, I understand after a lot of the research and reading and conversations I've had today and yesterday on these topics or why people are shy to discuss these, these matters. They're, they're heavy. And, and tricky and triggering and um, hard, 
However, I believe we're the ones to do it because the numbers, again, just like apparently season four, we're just going to rip it all off like a bandit. We're just going to talk about all the hard things in season four. So if you're not ready to talk about the hard things, then you can go ahead and click off now. But, um, <laughs> but if you are, or if you just want to watch, um, I, I feel firmly that I found the right people to talk about these, these difficult things. So before we get into that, I wanted everyone to know um, who may not have heard your first, and if you haven't heard the first interview with Jordana, as she's in the back of of this like medical van, literally in real time, helping people, and also on a podcast interview, it is so epic. Um, would you mind sharing with the class what the Recovery Mobile Clinic is all about? That you Absolutely. So the Recovery Mobile Clinic was founded in February of 2020. Great timing. Let me tell you, but it was actually founded with the um, with the idea in mind that we need to make addiction, but healthcare in general, more accessible for people who do not have access to healthcare. This became very apparent in my primary care office, which is in Oakland County, Michigan. So it's actually a pretty affluent area, but we would lose around thirty percent of our patients to follow up, and in an addiction setting, that could mean overdose or even death because they didn't have a ride to make it to the office. I mean, think about that. They died because they didn't have a ride to make it to the office. It, it really is a very serious issue. Now, my husband sells RVs. And it's funny how, you know, these conversations kind of like happen around the kitchen table, you know. Um, I always wanted to start something on my own and I wanted to start a clinic that could be more accessible. And we just started saying, well, why can't we put it in an RV? And I said, well, why can't we put it in an RV? So we started doing the research, pulling it together, seeing that, you know, mobile health clinics are kind of the way of the future. There's a lot of them coming out. We see them in mobile MRIs, mobile dentists, mobile vets, you know, why isn't there mobile addiction, you know? So. Mobile you- addiction. Yeah. Sorry. We have some waves over here. Some people oh, okay. saying hello. We just wave. Hi guys. We're talking about addiction and all those fun things, um, you know, Sunday night activities. Yeah. So but we need to talk about it. So wait, how, how long? I did not know this about you. Oh, your your husband had been selling RVs. Yes, he, he sells uh, RVs oh. at a large dealer. So he knows he's I say, you know, he's my secret weapon. Right. Because he knows oh. these things inside and out. And actually, the one that I'm sitting in was retrofitted by him. So, you know, talk about a handy dandy guy that takes let me, clinics let me and tell the people what you're sitting in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you see? I don't know how this works, guys. Go down like, a little computers. Like, I don't know where I am, but like, okay, hopefully you can see the RV. Yep. The, okay. So he's been selling them for how long? Oh, God. He's been doing that for 12 years now. And so you were you were thinking about this fact about how people are are sick and they die before they can get to help. Right. And he had RVs and you're sitting around the kitchen table. Some of my best thinking is that always at the kitchen table. I mean, I think we were sitting around playing a card game or something silly. You know what I mean? It's you're just like, why don't we just bring them together? 
light bulb moments that kind of go off. And when you think back, it's like, oh my gosh, who'd have thought that that little conversation would have spun into this, right? Yeah. Um, but in 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic, or well, before there really was a pandemic, when we were trying to get these clinics out into the community, we got a lot of resistance. Whenever we would start talking about bringing in a mobile addiction clinic, uh the response was oh my gosh you're an angel don't let your wing show but go do it somewhere else don't let your wing show <laughs> you know i would joke that they would kind of see us as the pied piper like you're bringing problems to their area right. right no well that's why i said in prefacing this whole entire conversation that sometimes it you know there's a reason other people aren't talking about these things yeah the stigma well, well. the stigma is is a whole thing but you know, I've never really cared about that. And I don't think you have either. So obviously I haven't either. Right. Yeah. So when, when COVID hit, what that enabled us to do, because in Michigan in March, it's still cold. Right. So, oh, yeah. you know, we had to get people back into shelters and back into transitional houses because what happened in Michigan is everything closed down. Right. No shelters could open. No transitional houses could get people in. It was it was a real odd situation. And we had people on the streets that were going to freeze. So we started doing COVID tests just to get people back in the doors. Well, now all of a sudden we're an answer to a solution, right? Now we're actually addressing an immediate need and allowing those municipalities that were scared of us to actually have a way to utilize us safely. We still were doing addiction, but we weren't taking it head on. We kind of like sidestepped the issue, <laughs> you know, took COVID on as front and then brought our addiction stuff on behind. And now the immediate issue, like right. that was like, you know, you know how you triage when we were talking about our kids, when we were doing a sound check, you, like, you triage your kids situations like this yes. one has a thing, but then all of a sudden this one's got like a real, real thing. So then you, you know, you snap into almost like, you know, I, I hate that I use that word as um, you are such a nurse practitioner, you, but triage. Yes. This, this problem is much larger than the one that we're always going to stay with. So, right. so I However, feel like, yeah. triage is a way to get them in through the door. Mm -hmm. But what you have to recognize is that the person is a whole system, right? So while yeah. the triage portion might be the COVID, the reason they're homeless, the reason, you know, all of the other things that are kind of coming in behind it are still there. And so that's why the re recovery mobile clinic is very um persistent about covering the needs of the entire person. So it's a very holistic look. So when we're going into a homeless shelter and treating somebody for hypertension, per se, one of our our cases, great gentleman, came into us madder than a hornet, let me just tell you. And he just, he was, he found himself stuck. He was homeless. He had no ID. He didn't have his social security card. He was robbed. So we didn't have his paperwork. It was a mess. Well, within um, a month, we had all of his paperwork under control, ID, social security card, you know, all of the, the, the copies of his bursars to get all of that kind of stuff. Wait, you With, did that for him? I, I feel like I wanted to hear this because our like that, I was recently, you know, um, I like to say lifted of some very important items when I was in France and it is not easy to, to get them back. To get no. them back. Yeah. yeah. So, and when you're somebody that's suffering you know, from mental illness and struggling with homelessness and don't have reliable addresses. It just augments that, that complication. So the case management being able to kind of run interference and help him communicate with those entities was able to help him get the documentation that he needed. 
So within two months, he had a job. And within four months, he was out of the shelter and in his own apartment. And guess what? Blood pressure? Gone, right? Because the issue wasn't blood pressure, even though that was the triage, right? The issue was the stress and the, the homelessness stress. and everything else, right? Yeah. So, we, you know, the, the, the issue is dig deeper. And that's what we have to find, look at when we're dealing with addiction. I always say that mental illness is not invisible, although they say that. Mental illness is an invisible disease. It's, it's not. Addiction is your visible symptom right there, right? So addiction is a secondary end of a primary diagnosis. It always is. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out that the addiction is is the symptom. What's the primary? What's, what's causing the primary? It? What's causing exactly. it? It's so like again, the it's like anything. Like when you go to the doctor and you're like, my knee hurts. And the, the good ones say, well, what's going on with that? The adjacent foot and that hip. Mm-hmm. You know, have you ever had an injury? Like it could be a secondary symptom of like a primary injury. It's like anything. Um, yep. Right. Am I wrong? I mean, that's you're correct. the nurse. I'm not a doctor. No, that's correct. Because <laughs> you have to look at the full, in that you instance, you have to look at the full functionality of the person. Correct. Right. Right. So are am I hearing this right? In seven months, you got this man back into back into the game with four months. Of, but yeah. Four months. So it was one month then the four then the four. Yeah. Wow. Four months he was off of his blood pressure meds and working and had his own apartment and had all of his documentation and really had turned his life around. You know, so and sometimes all that took was just us paying attention to really what the symptom was. And we have a lot of stories like that. Um, So the recovery mobile clinic, like I said, you know, goes to we go to homeless shelters. We go to transitional houses. We do a lot of community centers. So, you know, food banks and churches and, you know, kind of situations like that to try to offer care. Now, when most people think of mobile clinics, they think of these like random pop-up clinics that just pop up here. They're here for a day. It's one big event and then they're gone and you never see them again. Yeah. So like Red Cross comes rolling in with all their trucks and then they like, poof, baby. And they're gone. Yeah. They're right. gone. Yeah. Recovery mobile clinic doesn't do that. So that's the secret to our success. We hybrid the mobile model with traditional medical models. So we create large partners like the Salvation Army, like uh, Michigan Department of Corrections, the VA, you know, a, a lot of our like large partners and then a lot of the smaller local communities so that if the patients know that every Monday I'm at the Salvation Army, every Tuesday I can be found, you know, at, you know, live right. Every Wednesday I'm in Detroit. Every They know exactly where to find me. Same day, same time, same location, same team. Usually sometimes that varies, but you know, so we keep that patient continuity, that provider continuity that people depend on. So it's a hybrid model. And what we try to do is take them, get them stable, get them balanced, get them engaging in the healthcare system again, and then gently transition them back into the transit, the traditional model of healthcare. We don't want to keep them forever. I'm not interested in being their primary care docs. Now that is also important because then other providers in the area don't see us as a threat. We're not taking their patients. I'm not, you know, competing with them. Well, and you're trying to two kids, so you're not trying to take on more. You're, you know, you're, you're just trying, you're just trying to, trying to fix, you know, help and support a system in, in where in which I feel like the holes are. Right. 
when we're trying when to create are, the bridges between the holes. The bridges between the holes, 100%. I just wanted to ask you really quick because I have volunteered in many um, homeless shelters and, and things. You know, we've talked about it. It's, it's pretty much how three years ago we bonded. Um, but many people haven't had the opportunity, you know, their schedules and, and proximity and transportation, all of that. Um, and some of them are just lazy. You heard me. Um, can you tell me what you see? Can you tell us what what you see predominantly in the areas in which you go to when and and specifically to the disparity in the care that is just a bare necessity? The unfortunate thing in mental health um, is that they're difficult to deal with, right? Um, sometimes they're smelly. Sometimes they are have been off of their meds for a couple of weeks and they can't articulate, you know, clearly what they're needing, right? Sometimes they're in a manic state or in a severe depression state that's hard to handle. Um, sometimes they may be going through withdrawals because again, the addiction is kind of that symptom where they're trying to self-medicate when other options aren't there. Um, so they are very, they are very stigmatized. They are very underserviced. Um, and a lot of times they don't want to kind of come out and tell you what's going on um, because there is a huge stigma against mental health. Right. Um, it is, it is backwards in this country. Thank you. Um, Can you say that again? A little I'm loud. sorry. It is on the it, back. It is backwards in this country, and I'm going to take a cue from your uh, your sticky note about how screwed up it is. Um, yeah. But it is the only disease process we're actually more fearful of asking for help than we are right. fearful of the disease itself. Right? Because, now, let me say that again. We're more fearful of asking for help for mental health than we are of the disease itself, knowing that the result of the disease itself can be death. So what is more scary than death, right? Social isolation, you know, um, you know, the stigmatization or not being allowed into kind of the normal functioning society, yeah. um, being looked down on or being told that you're not worth it or not good enough. Right. Those are the things that people are scared of and rightfully so. And that's and what has to be. Stress skyrockets, right? I don't know if anybody, and I don't think you have to be in these specific facilities to feel that right like you're like you're left um feeling like will i be able to fit in well do i can i say that maybe today i feel like blah that we just uh, yeah i told you season four all the hard topics mm -hmm. but but they've been prevalent and asked for and we're answering i'm well you and i are answering to them today but um talking about suicide and mental health and and these things that we should talk about far more and understanding that there are only so many feelings, just as last episode, that you could possibly feel as an individual. Therefore, if we're all individuals, we may be snowflakes. I love that and I think it's true. Mm -hmm. There's only so many feelings we could be feeling. So if you're feeling like this is hard and you're isolated and you're stressed out for all the many different reasons plus you're dealing with as you said like mental health issues and um chemical imbalances i have a loved a very dear loved one who it had is schizophrenic and i understand but maybe they maybe our people don't understand 
um, what a manic episode looks like. And I would describe it as not a medical professional, as a pit bull snack. Like, um, like you're looking at someone having a conversation and then all of a sudden their eyes change, their body changes. It's just like, you don't know what to do. And what in that moment, I feel like on my side, what I would do is always feel like, oh my God, what do I do? Which is not helpful to a person in that scenario, right? Because they don't want you to make them feel even more um, isolated in that. Well, the natural um, reaction that most people have is to pull away or shut down or, you know, ignore them or put them away almost like a, a to use your, your your analogy the pit bull snap and put them in a cage right <laughs> so um that's the opposite of what we need right because opposite. then we're reinforcing yeah. that fear of that isolation and lockdown and everything so it is it, it is difficult and a, a key aspect to that and i'm sure with your friend is consistency with care right now mm-hmm. some of this comes down on um, the individuals i mean People who struggle with, you know, chronic mental illness like this have a identity crisis that they're dealing with all the time too. Because I, I think we all have identity crisis like all the time. Can I just like, honestly, who doesn't have an identity crisis like at least once a day where you're like, wait, no. But who doesn't want to be see? You know, a big thing in the disability world is we don't want to address somebody as, you know, you know, Lexus, you know, or. or the the anxiety patient over there named Lexus, right? We want to be seen as Lexus who has a history or who is struggling with anxiety. And there's it's a first language always. Yes. Sounds silly to learn to to uh change that around a little bit, you know, how how powerful is language, but it actually I mean we know this, right? It's hugely powerful. And it starts to change everybody's mindset, not only, you know, the the providers that are treating, but also the patient who's hearing it, right? I'm a person first, disease second. And some of that identity um, does have to come with a level of acceptance and understanding about what that disease process looks like for that individual, what that length of time might be, because it's going to vary for everybody. And then the consistency and the type of management that can kind of come along with it. And that's on the medical side's kind of responsibility, our responsibility, but also how much of that kind of goes over to the patient's responsibility. And a lot of that comes down to education. And awareness and ability, and ability to do so yeah correct yep yeah so it's, it's a complicated issue and we're not going to be able to kind of come up with a one you know one cure yeah, we're, we're probably like so many conversations we're gonna have to do like in a second one but i i just i like to because you know we have so many listeners thank you all for listening please make sure you like subscribe and share if you do like it or if you don't you know as i always say you can click off but I I do feel like we do this knowingly that what you and I both do um, and so many of the people we love that are in this same kind of, if you have it in you and you can help another person, what what else would we do? Well, we get a vantage point through through doing so that we see these things in real time. And I know that not everybody does. So if they're here and they show up, and I'm so grateful that you do, let's like walk them through it because they're obviously here, they want to understand. So thank you for that description. If like a quick recap for those who I have all these other messages here. 
um, for those who are just logging on. My angel, yeah, I'm going to say it here, Jordana. I can't really, I do hate when they're like, don't let your wings show. What does that even mean? Um, Jordana has a mobile clinic. It's, it's called Recovery Mobile Clinic. And she, for almost four years, right, Jordana? Yep. And, and you've been driving around bringing healthcare to those who cannot bring themselves to healthcare. And that, that first statistic and fact that you, out of the gates, you, you lobbed at us is extremely important for everyone to hear how many people died when they shouldn't have because they couldn't get there. I don't have exact numbers. I said about, we lost about 30% of our patients to follow up. Now, some of them that's crazy. died. Some of them relapsed, you know, or just were unable to stay on consistent medical care, medications uh, for their addiction or for their mental health or their primary care because of transitional or because of transportation lapses. And that's bad. That's sad. That's, that's good. That. So, so it, within your, your beautiful mobile caravan, which honestly, is this a different one? How many do you have now? We have three now. So this is actually our newest one. So, yep. we just Yeah, this one's swanky looking. <laughs> I want to go there. Yep. They're uh, kind of a, a balance between home and clinical. They're very clean looking, but they're also very welcoming and very engaging. They're not very sterile. Um, because, yeah. again, we want that to be a, a comfortable kind of feeling when patients are coming in. And not... And not um... So yeah, the sterile kind of, especially coming from if you have a mental health issue, if you haven't been able to be seen by anyone in a long time, if after that time of like no hugging, no touching, no high-fiving, whatever, to get in a small space with anyone I've I've witnessed has been tricky for a lot of individuals. I, I am not faulting you. I, for one, am a hugger. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. If I see you, I'm going to come all up on you, you know? But that's not for everyone. So the the balance that you have there is spot on. Um, before we lose entirely what we were talking about with stress, that one topic, I did read a statistic that was uh, pretty startling today. Uh, well, it, it turns out we are all stressed out. Like, <laughs> we're all and and to your point you know you're gonna die of that wasn't your point but that's what i heard you say we're all gonna die of something anyways but <laughs> but it doesn't have to be stressed right when we right. have access to these things and if it starts with a conversation if it starts with acknowledging that this is what you're feeling and and then looking into the ways that you could go about handling that and maybe like the statistics with addiction, you're going to be addicted. Okay. Like that, that's that you may never get out of, you know, with addiction. Um, I like to say that, it, you know, addiction does not, it's not specific to a certain group of people, a certain socioeconomic class, a certain location, a certain, you know, race, anything like that, to be honest. Everybody is addicted to something. To right? some, I love egg rolls. I just had this conversation earlier. I'm not living without egg rolls, okay? I'm, I'm a caffeine addict. I would run straight through a village of people for egg rolls when I want them. 
and also coffee. Um, my monster drink that we were talking about, she told me, if, if you keep drinking it, it's in my mug right now. If you keep drinking it, you're going to die. Yeah, probably. But like, um, arguably, both of us are addicted to work, right? That's yeah. our coping mechanism about solving a problem is we get down, we get busy, we get going, right? Which sometimes can be problematic for, for family and social situations because our, our priorities are somewhat skewed, right? So again, it's, for, like, <laughs> we don't sleep a lot. Yeah. So when we're dealing with addiction, what we have to kind of start teaching people to do is how to redirect some of those stresses and how to redirect some of the coping mechanisms into healthier modalities, right? Things that are not going to cause problems with the judicial system, that are not going to cause imminent harm to themselves, that are not going to cause um, or contribute to other behavioral um, instances that may, again, throw them into the legal system or put others in danger, right? So there's situations that we have to kind of have for conversation we have to have with the patients about eye-opening behaviors and separating behaviors from the actual addiction. And, you know, not stigmatizing the addictions because of choices and behaviors. There's a very big difference between the person and the addiction versus the choices and the behaviors and the, you know, the legal consequences of that. Compartmentalizing. So let's say, let's take it from one individual. Let's name that individual. I'm going to look at my books really quick and find a name. Bob. Bob. Bob, our addiction patient. Yes. Is... Let, let's go from there. So let's let's name off some of the majority of the things that you see daily in addiction patients. They're all Bob's problems. And and walk me through, if you wouldn't mind. How, so Bob may how, be addicted to Bob. Right. So Bob may be addicted to alcohol. Um, he may have a felony on his record for having multiple DUIs and has just come into our clinic after serving three years of a jail sentence and the jail discharged him and he is now living in a homeless shelter, right? So when he was in jail, he may have been on some psychiatric medications or antidepressants or other medications to try to help balance some of the medical um, instances that kind of contribute to it, contributed to his alcoholism. When he left jail- Well, and now him, he's also in jail and so there's stressors there too. Right, but yeah. they gave him, you know, three days of his medicines if he's lucky and put him in a homeless shelter. So talk about coming out of a very controlled, very structured situation, right? Into kind of a free for all without really having any coping mechanisms, any backup, any you know plan. Um, and with somebody who doesn't have those coping mechanisms already set up, we as humans go back to what we know, not what's good for us, what we know, right? De better the devil I know than the devil I don't, right? That whole idea, which mm -hmm. means his old behavior patterns are going to kick right back in. And the next thing you know, he's drinking again, even after doing a three-year stint, right? That's what we see all the time. So what we have to do is try to intercede, get that patient when they're maybe at their MDOC or at their parole office or, you know, setting up with their discharge planner from the jail to make sure that their medications are continued, that they, you know, have an option to come and see us to kind of get stable and then our case management team can try to get on board to try to help get them into those systems and those supportive aspects so they don't feel overwhelmed because it is very overwhelming re-entering so that's one instance that we deal with 
And do you find that it's easier for you to get them their medications? Because I know that that's, I'm not going to, I am not going to deep dive into difficulties. That's a totally different conversation, but just on this specific topic, because let's I say that an issue. we are willing to provide medications that are not controlled. So we will not do controlled medications because of our model, but, um, we and will, what are those? What are those? And tell us about your model. Really. A, contr a controlled substance is something that has an addictive potential in and of itself, right? So pain medications or um, some psychiatric medications like benzodiazepines or some addiction medications like Suboxone or Methadone, um, we won't manage because of our mobile model. Because one day we're there, we could drop off you know, 10 or 15 strips of controlled substances. And then the next day I literally could be a hundred miles away and that's not safe. If there's a problem with the medication or the patient, I, I can't be there to manage them. Our only recourse at that point is go to the ER and I don't like to practice that way. So we don't do controlled substances, mm -hmm. but most psychiatric medications, most primary care medications, sleeping medications, those kind of things are not controlled, but necessary for that patient to kind of aid in that transition without having them take on extra stresses that are not necessary. Um, okay. All right. I, all of that, I forgot my original question. What was it? You were, we were walking through Bob and you were yeah, kind Bob. of- yep. Bob, So Bob has all these, these things. Yep. And then I just wanted to see if like, how do you get his medication? Because sometimes, a lot of times that is extremely difficult. It's even hard for me with one of my kids and her anti-seizure medication. You know, it's absurd is they'll only give me like 20. Well, she has to take 75 milligrams. So it's like bi-monthly, I need to call, like, can I just have three months of her prescription? Like, can I adjust so that I don't have to, cause I have four children, I have to call you. If it's bi-monthly, then I, I need, well, some people call that bi-weekly, but then I need to call you multiple times a month just to get the refill uh, for the love of God. You know, mm -hmm. it's a huge issue and it's an anti-seizure. I'm thinking about, you're talking about, um, what is it with the, the one that I read so much about today when I was doing my research was the Suboxone, how do you say that? Suboxone? Yeah. Now, Suboxone is a controlled substance, so that yeah. is one that we prescribe. However, if a patient comes into us needing Suboxone, we don't ever just, and we never do this with any patient, say, oh, sorry, don't do that. See you later. Bye. And slam the door in their face, right? That's not our option. Why would that's they where, That's what's not clear in all of these papers. Like, they need it because were they on heroin or were they- Some like, sort of an opiate, yes. An opiate. Okay. Because yes. they don't specifically say the CBC, the FDA. I read so much today, I learned so, but I was like, <laughs> interesting that the one commonality here is that you're not saying what that's being used for. You're saying addicted. that they were addicted to something and so you prescribe them this thing yes. and now they're addicted to that thing, but you're not really like, as, as someone, I'm just trying to understand. So, so that is, and, and what exactly, how does this work? I'm now, honestly asking, I, I truly don't know. So Suboxone has its place. Um, I, w I was a Suboxone provider for six years, but it was again in a different modality, right? It was in a brick and mortar, different model of care wasn't this. Um, 
Suboxone is used for individuals who suffer from an opiate addiction, so such as heroin or Oxycontin or, um, you know, Percocets, Norco, that kind of stuff, um, as is methadone. They're, they're both two options for somebody who's going through an opiate type of a drug. Now, methadone is a full antagonist, a very strong opiate, right? Um, it was the oldest one that was around. So for a while, it was the only option. We usually dispense methadone on a daily basis. Not I say we, we do not, but individuals who do usually prescribe methadone on a daily basis. And the school of thought on that is better a controlled addiction than an uncontrolled addiction. Better to get them off the street and functional in life. You know, so it's it's that balance of functionality versus, you know, the, the uncontrolled behaviors that we talked Wait, about. Wait, Jordana, this is so much more interesting than all of this I read today. Hi, <laughs> it's double-sided um, because that you just answered more questions than all of these pages did. Where, where I, I, so methadone, mm -hmm. um, I did read that it is one of the oldest medications. What I've always kind of defaulted to is like i'd like the older more tried and true version like if i'm you know like for 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 ava for her seizure like like what's the one that has been put into place so many times with tried and true um that so but why what would i need this for methadone. so for somebody who Probably. is yeah for on those those opiates the problem with methadone is because it's a full antagonist it's binding to every single area in your brain that the heroin did so it's really hard to get people off don't bind mm -hmm. to my brain oh no yeah that's why that's why opiate addiction is binding to my brain uh, the opiate receptors in your brain so okay. it triggers those pleasure you know centers in your brain those dopamine releases um that's what people are kind of going on for when they when they take an opiate okay so then then like the whole school of thought of like it's better to have them on this thing and functioning it you know in society yes. than on the other things yes which would be heroin or, or unprescribed uncontrolled opiate right exactly okay now the problem with methadone like i was saying is it's very very strong the other part of it is it stays in your system longer than the effect stays on your brain. So what I mean by that is what we call half-life in the medical field. The rest, sorry. Yeah. So the, the time that it takes for half of the medication to be eliminated, which means that methadone has a very strong impact on your lungs and on your heart, on your kidneys and on your liver, right? The main ones being the so heart. Everything that keeps you alive. I'm sorry, your heart, your lungs, your liver, your kidney. Like, yep. does it do anything to your stomach too, just for funsies? Or? Oh, it's certain. I mean, it's probably, a probably. So probably. And like just every, all your vital organs. Yeah. Your it. body's the system. It all works together, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so it takes the body a longer time to eliminate that. So even though they're not feeling the effect of the medicine after about 24 hours, the long-term effect balance on the lungs and the, the heart can be three days, which means if they overtake that medication, they will go into respiratory distress or have heart attacks, stop breathing. Um, the death rate with methadone is, is too high in my opinion, oh which is why God. methadone is given in a daily routine as opposed to Suboxone, which is usually, you know, weekly, bi-weekly or monthly. 
um, because the methadone um, risk component is significantly higher. The risk component sounds significantly higher without a doubt. So yep. you are given like mm -hmm. a week, a month or whatever of somebody, but you're up to, it's up to you to take it as prescribed. Is that, am I understanding it correctly? Yes, in a Suboxone situation, not in a methadone situation. Methadone is always daily. daily. So again, if you can imagine, so you, you, you've mentioned kind of the, uh, the struggles with your daughter just getting your seizure medications, you know, via phone call. Mm -hmm. Now try holding down a job and taking care of kids and coaching soccer and doing all the stuff you do when you have to make a daily doctor's visit to get your one dose every single day. How functional well, do you get you? Well, it kind of, you have to, if you're telling me that if I'm, if not me, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but if, if I were and I'm prescribing like seven pills and they can take seven at a time that slams them into cardiac arrest, if I understood you correctly, Correct. that then yes, you would have to come in for your like meal ticket every single day. Okay. Yeah. And therein lies the rub. That's why Suboxone was developed. Okay. Now, Suboxone is a partial antagonist. So it is a medication called butronorphone um, that binds. I love these. I love all these acronyms. I love the, like, I love oh, this. Butronorphone is the generic form of the opiate that's used in Suboxone. Suboxone being the brand name. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. And Suboxone also has naloxone in it, which is also a partial antagonist. So if they were to try to take heroin on top of Suboxone, it would block it and it wouldn't work. And it would potentially throw them into a precipitated withdrawal, make them sick. So they tend to not do that. Yeah, that's good. Now, Suboxone is a film. It has to be dissolved under your tongue. It's kind of a pain in the butt uh, way to take it. Is Wait, there's a film under your tongue? Yep, it's kind of tricky. Or there's a tablet, but the same thing is it has to go under your tongue and be dissolved. Um, so there's a lot of user error in that. Nobody can <laughs> follow it, you know. You know, so some of it's, there's there's some of that training that kind of goes into it. Um, but Suboxone Wait, can, can also be really quick because I just want because honestly, I think we all need a laugh break because it's heavy, but it's so important. But honestly, I'm I, I don't know if anyone else had a visual of like putting. I've never put a if there's a film on my tongue, I'm like brushing my teeth till it's gone. Like I'm freaking out. So it looks like, like you remember those something. Listerine strips that were real popular for hot sauce? The Listerine strips that were supposed to replace gum, and every single time you put it in your mouth, it like would kind of sort of melt, but then it just left like a case. And it turned into a little weird thing. And you yeah. just wanted to scratch it off. Yes, I, I, yes, I remember that. Yes. So that's what we're dealing with. And it goes under their tongue, and they have to like pool their saliva, and it takes up to 15 minutes to dissolve. So if you can imagine, like hanging your head. But you have you can't swallow for 15 minutes. You know what's so weird is you probably don't for 15 minutes all day long. But tell me I can't swallow and all I want is silly trying to that instantly I'm like right. Okay, so and the yeah, reason so behind that is because of how it's absorbed um, through the submucosal layer. If you swallow it, it's going to be less effective because the gastric juices inside your stomach are going to start breaking it down, so you don't get the same effect on the medication. So. Oh. Okay, so now Suboxone has the same kind of indication like methadone, the idea being that keeping them stable on a medication that's going to be um, consistent, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
this one doesn't have that same type of level of risk that the methadone does. Mm -hmm. People can still overdose on Suboxone. It can still be dangerous, um, but not to the same level. And why is that? Because I, I, so, so I, so that's exactly the train of thought I just had. I was like, all right, so I just went from like methadone, I'm writing down all these words, butyrophosphate, yeah, butyrophosphate, and, and they all sound like, like trash experiences to me, but, you know, Bob, our guy, Bob, had, has had some issues and we want to help him get back because he's still out there fighting, right? Like he went through all the scenarios you said, jail and and all that. And now he wants to get a job and he wants to get back, but he has this thing. And as we started the conversation, everything I read today, if everyone's addicted to something, okay. And the like addiction's not going away. It's it's like how this conversation truly I I want at least a small portion of it to be like how is it healthiest to deal with that? But this this part with when you're really hooked. I, I wanna say the word hooked. I don't know why well, I've never said that before, like hooked on a drug. But methadone and suboxone are intended to be transitional medicines with the idea that we slowly, you know, we match where they're at, what they're using, and then we slowly wean them down mm-hmm. and off, right? Well, that's what this this one statistic is. It's um, 59.277 million or 21.4% of people 12 and over have misused prescription drugs within the last year. Mm-hmm. This is, um. thank you, thank you, CDC the CDC in 2023. I'm glad that we have more updated numbers, but I'm not glad for these numbers at all. That's why we're talking about it. 59.277 million. 21. And I did, did anyone else gasp when I said of people 12 and over? Cause I did when I read it, I was like 12, like since when did we start wasn't the gauge always like 15 and over or was 18 and over and now? Well, that's where we get into a lot of what we call these generational behaviors, learned behaviors, you know, that follow um, trends from, you know, parents to children and vice versa. Um, You know, alcoholism is just like opiate addiction, just like marijuana misuse, just like a benzo addiction. Um, They're the top three in the, they're the top three in the graphs. They're the top, those, what you just mentioned, top three. So I come from a family of alcoholics Um, and my sister who also works with me was talking about the generational trend and how she just couldn't see it and how, how flabbergasting it is. And I said, really, what was the first day? How old were you when you had a beer? Because dad thought it was funny. She was like, I was was 10. (gasps) I was 10. I said, you were 10. You were 10 years old and fed a beer by family because they thought it was funny. Now, in our family, it was alcohol, but in other situations, it could be heroin, it could be THC, it could be cocaine, it could be whatever the drug of choice in that family is. Um, We do see uh, adolescent addiction. Um, A lot of that comes from other types of traumas, and you have to look into sexual abuse and, you know, all of the other things that kind of unfortunately happen. Um, 
the that's where I was like, welcome to season four. We're gonna talk about all these like really Heavy great topics. They all they all happen to yeah. actually coincide at some point. There's oh, yeah. always like a contact point, which is yeah. bananas. Um, but I will tell you on a happy note, actually, when I lived in Europe, luckily, fortunately, working when I couldn't afford to go to college. Um, the thing that I loved about Germany is they're like little tiny, like thimbles of beer that they serve with dinner to kids that looked like maybe they were 10. I don't know, maybe I was 19 and so maybe they were older. I don't know, but they looked like they were 10. And, and the way that they handled integrating almost like um, just, you know, pairing, like a food pairing with the beer that they were having, but also in the celebration and teaching them how to handle those situations was fascinating to me. We do not, don't, we don't do that here. We're not like, we don't do that here. It's either like a big secret. So everybody like binges, purges, slams cars into trees and acts like a jerk or, or what you just said, which is even, well, I don't know what's worse. It's all bad, but I think there's something really sophisticated about that because it's unavoidable. They're going to go to parties. They're going to go to college. They're going to want to explore. And like, we don't, we can't keep them from that. Why would we anyways, if you can show them exactly how it's used. And I, again, not a medical professional and I'm not even like a professional or anything. But I, from my observation, I remember watching a, like, you know, lunch at a beer garden and being like, that's really fascinating. Don't say you're not a professional anything because a mother, no, really not. <laughs> you're really not. I'm a mother too. Um, because it starts in the home, teaching kids how to manage um, and control their impulses, moderation, all of that stuff starts in the home and it has to continue in the home. In a safe um, place. Yeah. Unfortunately, the U.S. is a culture of excess. It always has been, right? Yeah. So um, we work too much. We yeah. eat too much. We drink too much. It's a, it's a cultural thing. Europeans do have a tendency to balance. Balance. Um, they have balance. Yeah, they a do. A little that. bit moderation, a little bit more. But again, they're not perfect either. You know, I mean, no, no, I never said they were. There's addiction all over Europe too. Yes, specifically and to that, I think now, it's just interesting because, like, what what a simple change to make. But if you're talking about as you were, we started with Bob, and we started with all the, mm -hmm. you know, the yeah. methadone, butcherpicha. I can't say it's that horrible. word. Yeah, you know that trajectory and Bob and how it translates. But when you look at the findings and it starts at age 12, which is really, uh, it, it kind of rocked me a little bit to see that 12 and over. It's like, it's like children's Tylenol says like 12 and over, you know, like what now we're talking about drug addiction, 12 and over. Okay. Like I wasn't ready for it when I read it. Because uh, again, there's, there's a lack of coping mechanisms and recognition and, and, support and what's going on at home structure. Right. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's a symptom of something else, right? That's always what it is. Wait, I got to show them because I can't show you two. And so they're just looking at my ugly mug this whole time, but people, oh. they're, they're saying hello. 
Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello from in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for thank you for joining. Sorry that we don't know how to make it a split screen on this too, but um, you don't have to look at me. Uh, you could look at my plant thing above me. <laughs> um, it just makes perfect sense. So it starts at the core, right? The individual. There are so many different ways we could take this conversation, but for today, I think because it's a high level conversation, I wanted to share the incredible work you're doing with the recovery mobile clinic, because again, another individual that I was so lucky to find that could have been going into any other field, you'd be successful. Well, you have a master's. Okay. And <laughs> okay. You have like an acute, I'm sorry. Could you just repeat it for the boss? Acute nurse practitioner. Acute care nurse practitioners. Technically. Yeah, she's like kind of a big deal. You could have taken that and done whatever you wanted to with it. And instead, you're having a conversation with your husband who drives RVs. And you're like, wait a second. Mm -hmm. There's a huge disparity here. And people are losing their lives trying to get help. And in, instead of taking the common route for people with masters, what's that like? I love it. <laughs> You took the, the road less known and you built something that has made such a massive impact and is is growing so greatly around you since I met you. And it's not going to start with stop with me. Remember, no. we um, the goal of the recovery mobile clinic is to train other nurse practitioners, PAs, docs, providers mm -hmm. um, to do what I'm doing. I am not going to retire until I have one of these in every lower 48. That's my small goal. Okay. So well, no, that, that's a goal I will help you with because I believe in that. No, I, I anything I can do. If you, hi, hello, hello, everyone. Let's look over here. <laughs> Are you looking for a job and have you ever wanted to be a hero? So we want to train nurse practitioners and providers because in our world, in the nurse practitioner world, what we're actually in is a huge tipping point. It's called full practice authority, where nurse practitioners for the first time ever are in 27 states out of 48, so we've, we've gone over the halfway part, are able to own and operate their own medical clinics without physician oversight. So that's new. Nurses are actually going, okay, well, now what? How do I do that? And the recovery mobile clinic is hopefully going to be keyly positioned to not only teach them how, but give them a working framework and a model that works. And then we're, like I said, working on those big national partners to help them get going, get started um, and create a nurse practitioner army, literally out there in the communities, picking up people that that need help and doing what nurses do best, mm. engaging with people at their level and then helping educate and transition them into the higher levels of care that's where nurses shine and we're gonna we're gonna make nurse practitioners take addiction and, and make it their own they're first responders it's right. like why i would like a fireman before yep. like everyone else like, sorry but you're an um right. yeah we're front line you you're know. front line people yes and and i love the idea i love the concept and the visual i got that i made up of of just an <laughs> army of nurses yes please i'd like yeah. in case something happens to my first one i want like another one i think it's it's becoming from these numbers jordana 
I didn't want to talk about addiction. I didn't know anything about it. Right. I really like not like this, but I did. And, and I'm always open to these always because I love to learn and I need to know it. Right. There's no point. It's like everyone else. When we started this conversation, you don't want to talk about it. You just close your mind to it. Well, it, well, that's not going to help either. So I was 150% open to it. The more I learned, the more I was like, I just don't understand exactly though when we're going from, you know, your life was really trying and you have a mental health issue and you have all these other things, which so many, I mean, the vast majority of us do. And the systems are all broken, the big ones, to support you and to help you find what it is that you need to, to get into your, your daily life back again. Um, you're on one drug, then they put you on another one to get off of that drug. Then you're on another one to get off of that drug. Like where, what else can we do? Because I know there's somebody out there. I actually know a few people myself. Oh, I'm never going to ever mention any names, but, but the smile when they see mm -hmm. it, I'm so proud of them because I can think of three right now who had major drug addictions that I encountered at different phases in my life who got, they followed their own path. They navigated it themselves and realized that they were going to die and that we're all going to die eventually, but, but they don't want to die today. But not today. Yeah. They don't want to die today. Right. And so what are the first steps that they needed to take just, just today? The biggest going and they did, and they did it. And, they, and they're, they're sober to this day. Yeah. And I, I, can we just applaud actually? I know, right? Everybody that makes it, the I know. Yeah. Because this is not easy stuff, guys. And it's not, it doesn't make you broken. I'm so tired of hearing that you weren't broken. They're not broken. They're not broken. You're not broken. I'm not broken. We're all just built with different things. We get dealt a different deck of cards. Okay. Hand, hand of cards. Yeah. And we, and we deal with them the best we can. And right. I'm so very proud of, of, so many people, the more I read and, and the rates and the numbers and the, um, usually I love statistics this time. I was like, yeah, it's kind of depressing. Well, well, it wasn't even just that it was, it was without, it was lacking personal context when I have those relations, like I've met people, you know, I have friends who, who did a really beautiful poetic job that, that I don't think they're reflected in these numbers. And that made me grumpy, you know? Well, this is the grumpy. thing about addiction that I, if, and if we, if I have one message that comes out of this, this is, this is what I want it to be. That the stigma around mental health and addiction is literally killing people. Yes. The ending the stigma is the biggest mission that the recovery mobile clinic has. And what that means is talking about it now you're talking about it which i applaud you because that's huge but i can't tell you how many interviews i've done where people bring me on and i know they brought me on because they've dealt with addiction in some way self-reform themselves or a family member or somebody and we talk about it we do our podcast and then at the end of the recording they say 
now don't tell anybody, but this is my story. And then they tell me their story and they say, there's just not enough being done. I don't understand why, why there isn't. And I say, well, I don't want to be insulting or I don't want to, you know, undermine the, the hard story you just told me. But the reason is because of what you just said. Don't tell anybody, but we need to be talking about it. We need to be engaging that conversation because addiction is not rare. It is not. No, it's actually, guys, it's actually, like, what did I say? I, I mean, everyone has a mental health issue. Right. I have. I mean, if you want this PDF, I put it all together myself. I did a lot of research. It's my own PDF from different websites that are all like medical ones. But it turns out we all have a mental health issue. We all have an addiction issue. You're either plugged into this device or you're addicted. Okay. Mm-hmm. It needs to be talked about. I did. Did I want to, Jordana? I am not trying to look like I'm trying to hide my wings or whatever that funny baloney was. <laughs> I just, I am deeply uncomfortable talking about these things because only because it breaks my heart. Because I want people to know that if you see me on the street, you know where to find me. If you have a message, if you have, if you need someone to talk, it. It guts me to think that there are people out there who want to say, I have an issue and all I want to do is tell someone. Right. And the the more that we break down that stigma and stop those doors from closing in their face when they actually need to talk about it, the the more we're going to engage the the population of people that actually needs help and, and show them how to do it. But, and realize that we're all just kind of just trucking through this thing we called life. And it, is, <laughs> like, it makes no actual sense on paper. But here we are. You know, we get up, we do the same thing every day, and we're all faced with different things. But we only have this many feelings, right? This, So it's okay to say that today maybe you're not okay. Mm-hmm. And not drown yourself or those feelings or hide them or mute them or what did you say about the one method methadone or you yeah drop. where you just don't feel anything at all mm-hmm. um what if you just instead of doing that today you tell one person like i'm in pain yeah. I'm miserable it's hard i'm scared i'm whatever and what if we all just kept doing that? Mm-hmm. And and it's not going to save all the bedrones and norfins and tacones or whatever. It's not going to help us with with that. But it, it's got a hell of a lot of power behind it in just recognizing that there are resources. And yours is such a beautiful one. And, and there are people out there that can help. But also, everyone you encounter is feeling scared, maybe for a different reason, mm-hmm. is feeling tired, is feeling angry for maybe a different reason. It doesn't matter. That's a conversation starter. If you're missing community, it's all around you. And, and God, I just really constantly live to will people to want to talk to each other more than just, a, okay, I'm fine. Because all of these roads in all the last, all of season four, lead to the, you know, addiction, death, just misery, 
And, and it doesn't have to. It does not have to. So if you already have been on this trajectory, I think, of, of I can't say the, can you tell the drug names again? Like Suboxone, buprenorphone, methadone. Um, Sublocate is another one that's a form of buprenorphone. The medication we use is called Vivitrol, which is the non-addictive naltrexone. Um, we call it a maintenance drug. So wait, spell that because that's something Vivitrol. V-I-V-I-T-R-O-L. Vivitrol. Okay. So when they, could they get that? How do they get that? Because if it's non-addictive, that's going to solve a lot of problems. That's my point. I now, the problem is you have to transition off of the opiate, right? So you have to, again, Suboxone and Methadone have their purpose. They're not evil in and of themselves. They are a medication that every medicine is a double-edged sword. There's a good side and a bad side. Um, you have to be aware of what you're, you're taking. But if you have the mindset of transitioning off, that's the goal, right? You have to have the goal of going in that Suboxone and Methadone are not going to be forever. Mm -hmm. They are going to be transitional and that we're going to be working on getting people down. Now, what I call the, tra the, the third step, the tertiary step, is maintenance as you're learning all of those new coping mechanisms, learning how to handle stress without the opiate there. That's where Vivitrol comes in. It's like a safety net. Mm -hmm. Or I, I call it your life raft in the middle of the ocean. I was right? just going to say life raft. <laughs> you still have to swim. Yeah out of the ocean, right? You still, have, you still to have to kick your feet. You still have to move. You still have to do the work. You still have to go to counseling. You still have to do the therapy. You still have to do the lifestyle modifications. It doesn't take away from the journey, but the life raft is going to make it a whole heck of a lot easier. What's and after the to... life raft though? Is that, so that's just like, do, do you have like a weaning process? Cause I did a, a podcast interview with a guy that died like five to six times in skiing accident. Did, did you ever hear that one? It's uh, using different back. Okay. It was, it was insane. And then they gave him all these painkillers and he had to get off of them. Yeah. But they, but the doctor's office gave them like a weaning process yeah. to get off. Right. Of them. How did, yeah. how did they find that they're not given that? Well, that you have to have those conversations. You have to be open with your healthcare provider about what your goals are. Mm -hmm. And your goal needs to be to wean off, right? When mm -hmm. you start these medications, it should always be a step. It shouldn't be the, you know, a permanent status, right? What if they can't go to a doctor? Well, for those medicines, you're going to have, you, you have to, for the controlled substances. Well, what, okay. But if you buy them on the street, like okay, low key, maybe <laughs> they could just like not. Take you can wean yourself day. down by taking, you know, this, the Suboxone strips can be cut in half. Um, you know, the methadone tablets can be cut or bit. Um, you know, you can bring them down a little bit. And those are kind of the steps you have to you have to take. But you have to understand that when that happens, even though it might be lower level symptoms because you're you're weaning but some of the withdrawal symptoms can still be there which is usually why we want this monitored by a healthcare provider because withdrawal symptoms can be uncomfortable yes but also the healthcare system has built many many people arguably uh, that's why we're here but that's why we're here yeah but so there's, a, if there's somebody listening because like you have an iphone mm -hmm. but maybe i don't know or, or, or the samsung 
yeah. and you're listening and, and you're like, what should I do? And you want to, if you want to, all you need to do, I think in the darkest moments of my life or, or being with the ones I love in their darkest moments, all, all that needed to happen was that they, we, in those moments chose. And then you choose again tomorrow to do it again. You want that. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to choose again the next day, every single day to get to what it is that you want. And, and there are ways, even when it looks like, cause it can be discouraging. And I read a whole nother, I think it's over here, whole nother periodical on how discouraging it is to people who make that decision. And then they go to the doctor into their office and they go and they say, I want to wean off of this. And then they're, they're met with like a month wait, or I mean, there's a whole nother statistics page on it. Well, you can do it a little bit on your own is what I wanted to say. I mean, I, again, we are not prescribing. We're just saying that if it's in you know that, that you could still, like you said, have those side effects. Mm-hmm. But to wean off, to like snap it in half or bite it off or, um, but every single day, wake up and make the decision to continue doing that. I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually a mechanism or a, a, a counseling mechanism that I use a lot with our patients. This is the question I ask my patients all the time. And this is what makes you and me different, Alexis. Oh, what are different? Is, well, outside of your masters and my me and you are very similar in some situations that's what i mean from our standpoint we're very similar in this when you ask us this big question we have an answer and the question is what do you want what do you want now that's a big question well i can't help you if you don't tell me what you want but they don't know now oprah winfrey once said everybody has the same vehicle we all have the same ability to get somewhere now, what makes me different is that I always had a destination. Everybody else just kept driving around the block. Oprah Winfrey always knew what she wanted, right? She wanted to host. She wanted her network show. She had a big dream. She had a goal. And every decision she made set her up for the success that she wanted. Dwayne Johnson, same thing. Anybody that's in a successful situation, any sports athlete made that decision to get up every morning at 4 a.m. and go work out and make the sacrifices and eat right, and work out and train, 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 right? But they if were they, never they, in a wheelchair. They're different goals for different people. I will never be a basketball star. I lost how many jobs because I'm not a good employee, to be honest. I'm a really yeah, good CEO. That's why we own our own businesses. We can't work so <laughs> you're going you're to realize and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. And you have to be willing to make the conscious decision to make the decision every day, even when those failures happen, about what other decision can give you that to give you the success you want. A wheel, someone in a wheelchair does not have to leave and live an unproductive or unvaluable life. No, I mean no, absolutely you know? not. 
and they all don't like from and they all don't but 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 i will tell oprah that she can shove it when she uses a driving analogy because (laughs) well that was just something she talked about but yeah but i've also met oprah and she'll know when she sees this hi oprah remember how rude you were when i walked in your fashion it's an analogy it's It's okay (laughs) but the idea being that when you have that goal you have the ability to to make a decision it's a commitment to yourself yeah I, it's like daily I, I hate the word affirmation <laughs> you know you see it like it's worse when it's written than when it's said it's one of those words where you read it <laughs> it's like yikes when you read it but when someone says daily affirmation it doesn't hurt as bad but right. you know, it's like goals like when i wake up in the morning some days i'm telling you wednesdays and thursdays lately have been like brutal between work and the kids' schedules and everything. And it's just sort of like, today, I'm gonna do the best I can. Mm-hmm. And yep. and some days you have an actual, like today at this time, that's what I'm gonna do and bring that over the line. Other days it's like, I'm gonna put one foot in front of the other and I'm gonna keep doing that right. until it's the end of the day. I'm gonna do that. Yep. inchworm kind of style and there is no wrong way to do it because if you're doing it mm-hmm. yeah yeah i love it i love it but but i my heart in in this entire season jordana i love that you were with me on this one because i i was like ah whew, i want to answer the question wait we do have a couple questions and we're oh, okay. over time but um well we had a lot of questions that were summarized into three questions knowing this would happen but um when i was looking at this people all over are just basically not fine um so the more we could just say or stop saying how are you would probably be for the best because we're just trying to say i'm good how are you but what if you're not Mm -hmm. okay it's okay because it turns out statistically no one is um this one was heavy for me. I'm going to try to breeze through them because I know that we're like way over time. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Luke from Minneapolis. I, be- oh. I believe my son, who is 14, has used illegal drugs and may be addicted. I could use some advice. Well, that's what? kind of what we talked about with the 12 and over, right? Right. Now, um, what you want to do is make sure that you're getting your son to talk, hopefully to you, or at least to um, a counselor or a provider that might be able to offer him some options. Um, I'm not sure about the whole situation there, but the biggest key here is getting them to talk and getting them to understand what is happening, kind of the, the full picture. And that's why I bring the counseling in. Um, but that's important so that we start kind of having those engaging conversations. Now, some kids in this age group, 14 year olds probably aren't going to talk to their parents. God knows mine wasn't going to. So sometimes finding support groups that are other adolescents might be kind of the best way. That's to what I was going to ask, because I'm thinking about my nine year olds who act like they're 15 and like, there's no way. I mean, because I, at first I was like, maybe the, um, a social worker at school or like therapist at school or or something but there's no way 
I mean, yeah, maybe there's a group of adolescents. There are. So, um, you know, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous do have adolescent groups. Um, There's uh, online uh, resources on Families Against Narcotics or FAN.org. And again, they have a lot of resources towards adolescent type of groups and counseling and options to at least get the conversation going. So that's hugely helpful. Luke, thank you for your question. Um, I hope that's helpful. If like, let's let's follow that fan.org, Luke, and um, let's let's continue to work on this. We're here for it. You can always email us back um, with any further questions. Where I feel like we're both in it. Like you, you reach out to me, and now you're in like you're like my inner circle. <laughs> And, and I'm gonna. I want to follow with you. To I know why are we like this, but like we are. Um, let's make it all the way out of whatever that situation is. Thank you for your answer, Trisha. From Houston, my mom is in assisted living with mobility and vision disabilities. I have witnessed her misusing her antidepressants. Mm. I'm worried about her and I don't know how to help her. Geriatrics is a little bit different. Sometimes we have to we have to break apart how much of that is intentional misuse or how much of it could be cognitive decline. They're forgetting to take their meds or they're not understanding what medicine they've got or they all look like little white circles. Um, so, you know, sometimes with geriatrics, we have to kind of, you know, focus that. The other thing you have to understand with that age population um, is that they're dealing with a lot of grief and loss and isolation, right? Everybody they know is dying. Um, They're really looking mortality in the face. So they do have a very different kind of need at that level, you know, from an anxiety and, and depression standpoint. Again, counseling, grief counseling, talking with other residents, engaging in social activities, reminding somebody that in the last stages of their life does not mean that they have to not live, not right? Live, right. You know, so it out. Yeah. there's a lot of that, but you want to make sure again, that there isn't another issue going on, a medical issue, uh, UTI, confusion, cognitive decline. Wait, why a UTI? Oh my God. Uh, UTIs are extremely common in that age population, and they cause um, mental confusion and disorientation because it's an infection. It's very common in that age population. Okay, that, I don't know why, feels really important for everyone to know, Mm -hmm. especially in geriatric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so if, if, um, for, sorry, Trisha, should she talk to her mom or talk to like the assisted living where she should go for both you know talk with your mom you know have a conversation about what's going on what symptoms are are happening assisted livings though do have the capacity to to take on higher levels of care as the patient kind of declines that's what i was going to ask like can they request like a higher level through is there a gateway yeah so usually i mean you'd have to look at which facility but most of them do so then it would be like nurses would provide the medication so there's less like confusion from 
the patient managing their own medications, that kind of stuff. Um, you can improve or escalate levels of care usually in those facilities. So there might be a couple different options for you. Well, that's important to know because they don't broadcast that. It's kind of like the last conversation when I was like, I have an IEP for three of my four children because it turns out I love all your services and I would very much like them for all of my children. But if you don't know that they're there, you don't know to ask for them. So, so Trisha, let's investigate that assisted living place and see what help there's see what else is available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. Okay. D it comes out in like a printout. (laughs) D Jackson. Well, he didn't send his location, but that's okay. Um, hi D Jackson. My, my son who is 32 has schizophrenia and a paranoia disorder. His substance abuse issues skyrocketed during the pandemic. I have tried to help him, but nothing seemed to work. I love my son. What can I do? That's a heavy one. A lot of people with mental health issues really got hit hard by the pandemic. It was hard on all of us, but they had no resources. They couldn't mm-hmm. see docs. There wasn't access to people who needed surgery. Couldn't access. I know. Like, you know no the counseling care. groups, the the psychiatric medication. All of that stuff was just not available. Um, I know that paranoid schizophrenia is a very hard diagnosis, especially trying to get them to kind of when they're in kind of the grips of the disease, trying to get them to understand that it's the disease you know, that's talking, not reality is, is very difficult. It's, it's as you, it's actually like you, you answered part of it in the very beginning of our conversation tonight about like when I said the snap and like when they're in, um, what's the word that you used They're When, when they're in like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, this disorienting and you just want to help them, but you don't really, I mean, they're again, no handbook with your children. Right. Unfortunately, in this situation, what we really need to do is try to get your son to go into an inpatient facility. With somebody who suffers with paranoid schizophrenia, it's a double-edged sword again, because sometimes those are the very facilities that give them stress. Um, right. Because, you it know, depends so- on the facility, for sure. Right. Um, so sometimes maybe even getting them into a community counselor or community psychiatrist to help initiate some low level medications to try to help bring them down a little bit so that maybe they'd be willing to kind of look into the larger picture, you know, treatment options. So sometimes it's just getting them off the ledge and bringing them from a 10 to an eight, you know, and then, then you might be able to, you know, have a conversation about opening up some other options for areas. Um, it's that is a hard one. It's a, it's a hard one. And Mr. D. Jackson, um, I don't, um, I wish I had more to add, but I will find the numbers. I, if, if I knew where he was, right? Like, I feel like we could find a place, we could help you with locations for, for these community centers for, to find, like, um, when you, send me words like I love my son and what can I do I'm in a puddle on the floor and I'm going to help you 
thank you for coming here to ask this question and i will a lot of things that i'd like to tell, tell mr jackson too is don't overlook your need as a caregiver to reach out too. there are a lot of caregiver um, support groups and you'll learn a lot mm. you'll, you'll learn a lot of other resources that people have used you know counselors that they love um you know i mean engaging in a community yourself not only for support for for you will also help you be a better support better support for your so don't, don't overlook that need and that possibility too because we all love our family members who are struggling and we're all just trying right see back it's to all best the we can topics on like we're all just trying it's one foot in front of the other we're we're up against we're up against a lot of odds like you have a surgery you're you're given these things and you're given to another drug and then somehow you end up here and and there and we just you know it's it's not easy for anybody no. but that is such a hot tip sometimes it's easy to get caught up in like especially when parents write in oh my god that i'm just that and they say things like i love this person first of all what are the names again i, I gotta go back luke wait hold on i think i can do it luke trisha and mr dj's Thank you for entrusting us. Well, not really me, but me and finding Jordana, who is a trusted medical professional to ask these questions. Thank you for reaching out. It's what we were talking about. It, we can't get better if we don't talk to each other. If you don't ask for help, you won't get it. And, and I am here to be that bridge, to find the right people and, and to make sure that that we can solve these problems that that we absolutely have the tools to solve um and for sharing this information and i get to meet these wonderful people like Jordana, who is a the absolute warrior angel person okay and Make with her masters but i before we before we have to click off because i'm taking up all of your time i ran way over but i i really enjoyed this conversation so i didn't want it to be done i want to tour this new yeah. can i get a sip like a like a quick like can you just show me around sure and let's find the other let me bring up this one again too maybe everyone who's still here they come hi guys gosh hello um all right i don't know right. you ready so i'm sitting in our captain chair right now so this is actually a winnebago this one's name is we lovingly call her winnie <laughs> um so she was just built out so they would come in through our doorway here and then they will see our intake area oh it's so it's exactly what you said it's like sterile like a doctor's office but well, it's homey yet yeah. but homey comfortable yeah now, now this is a, a slide out we usually have a good extra you know couple feet here but we're stored right now so it's a little bit bigger usually on a normal basis we come back this way where we have um what we co lovingly call our urine station since we do a lot of urine drug screens so um we have that storage the loo. The loo. wait there. you have like a brick backsplash too yeah okay here <laughs> this is the uh the bathroom because we do again a lot of urine tests and std screens and stuff like that that people may need 
And then the clinic area, this is where my husband's expertise shine um, is right here. So this is where we do all of the work and see all of our patients. Yeah, the window is huge. Like, don't put me, don't trap me in a room with no window. Um, yes, you know, the windows give a little bit of extra light, a little bit, again, of comfort. But you have to remember, RVs are really tall. So you can't, like, people really have to put effort in to jump and see in the window. But they do but have they do a, it, it, like the just the feeling of that you're not like, yes, and it's like, not boxing, you can't see it from here. You can, maybe the little squares, but there's a like a privacy screen that you can see out, but they can't see in. So they right. see part of our. Um, I'm going to go outside so you can kind of swell into the storage facility so you can see what our clinics look like. So oh, I'll bring it back. Wait, hold on. Look at look at the outside of your mobile clinic. Yeah, look this at this. This is what? Winnie. A Winnie is. So Winnie is 28 feet, 26. And this is, uh, we call her Blue Betty or the OG, the original model. The OG. <laughs> so uh, and now this one is a little bit bigger. She's 28 feet. The navy with the gold. And, and like the, you can see out, but no one can see in. It's yep. You the way that I just remember the first time we had an interview and you never broke your striding conversation, which I have no idea how you pulled that off. But you, you, there were there were gentlemen who were living on the street that needed. I think it was a flu shot, if I remember correctly. And and you just never broke striding conversation. You just said, "All right, come on in. We're just gonna over here." And then you, like Lex, I'll be right back. And yeah. It was, I don't have another experience in my entire life that would even remotely be the same. I just said, yeah, for sure, I'm going to wait here. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to wait right here. Yes, I will. Because what? She left. And she comes back. She's like, all right. She's like snapping off rubber gloves and with that antibacterial. All right. So where were we? Like, unbelievable <laughs> stuff. But, but um, yeah, I love what you do. It's so important. And and we will get those. What did you say? Was it we need 48? We need 58? How many states do we need left? The lower 48. So well, yeah, we want to okay, train yeah, providers on addiction, on ending the stigma, on reaching people where they are and kind of breaking down um, the model of healthcare and really making mobile, you know, as a, an accessible option for people. And that's yeah, and that's my dream. And it saves yeah. lives. Yeah, it's exactly why at this stage when I have ever had to leave my kids with a caregiver, which I, as a working mother, you got to do sometimes, you you say, if in case of any danger, I have the fortune to say, call 911, get an ambulance, get it, like urgent care. Don't, don't take them to, you know, just, just get an EMT here ASAP, Rocky, like that right now. But um, not everybody does. And I am acutely aware of that too. So I'm with you. I will help you any way I can. If you like this podcast, you must like, subscribe, and share it because we get people like 
Jordana, <laughs> the mobile recovery clinic that will save so many lives. The more we work together and the more we share these awesome stories is truly how that's the power. That's, that's the power in how we create bigger solutions to very large problems um, together. Yes. Yeah. Thank you again for having me, Lexus. Thank you. I love you so much. I will get, but honestly, when are you coming to Chicago? Last time you said you were coming. And you <laughs> well, I'd love to, um, you know, we'll, we'll get over to Chicago. So, you know, give us a little bit of time, but we'll come visit. All right. All right. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge, your expertise, and, and all of this information. I'm going to follow up with, I'm going to look into the different communities and I'll see if um, hopefully Luke, Trisha, and Mr. Jackson respond with more specific things. So um, I'll probably reach out with those if they do. All right. Sounds great. Have a great night. You too. Thank you guys, thank you so much. Okay.